I invite you to open the Word of God with me to Psalm 63. This afternoon we're going to focus on what um, we confess in um, Lord's Day 29, what it summarizes there from Scripture about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And as a background reading to that, we will read from Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now we turn to what we confess in Lord's Day 29 of the Catechism You can find that on page 544 of your book of praise. Here we read as follows. Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge. First, that through the working of the Holy Spirit we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth his holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we celebrated the Lord's Supper again together. For those of you that went to the table, how did you feel as you walked up the aisle and approached the table? Maybe for some of you it was a highlight. For others, maybe it was nerve-wracking. You always feel anxious sitting up front here with everyone looking at you. And maybe there were others who felt nothing at all. Or maybe you feel like you should have felt something, but you didn't. Maybe that's part of a bigger struggle in your life. Your struggle with getting something out of the sacrament is part of a bigger struggle of faith in general. Maybe you've never talked to anyone about that. But it's there every time. What to do? Well, from that perspective, it's helpful for us to contemplate the Lord's Supper again this afternoon. Why does the Lord call us to his table? Why is he so insistent that we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Because he's serious about your forgiveness, and he's serious about your renewal, and he really wants you to understand it. He really wants you to believe it, and that will be our approach this afternoon as well. We'll see that the Lord calls you to his table because he is serious about your forgiveness and renewal. He really wants you to understand it, and he really wants you to believe it. So our catechism reading this afternoon says that Christ wants to teach us by his supper. He wants us to know, and he wants us to understand And really, that's the motivation behind all of Scripture as well, isn't it? God, by nature, is a God who wants to reveal himself. We find that reflected in Psalm 63 as well. David was separated from the sanctuary, separated from the place where he could worship God regularly. Now, in the last few years with COVID-related shutdowns, we've, we've learned a little bit about what that feels like. We've grown to appreciate what that means. We've begun to understand what it means to not worship God regularly together. David was not able to share in that kind of worship either. It's not entirely clear what the background of the psalm was. There were so many times in David's life when he was on the run. Some scholars think that this one was written as a response to his flight from his son Absalom. But it could have fit with a number of other occasions in his life as well. But the main thing is clear, that David is far away from the temple, and he longs for God. But why does David long for God? Because God longed for David first. The temple is so special because this was a place where God revealed himself. Today he continues to reveal himself to us through his word, and that is what makes church so special. This is the place where God's word is preached This is a place where God reveals himself through his word. And that means that he reveals what kind of a being he is and what his intentions are with us. We can never take that for granted. If we were sinless, God would not need to reveal himself to us. We would already know who he is. But we are not sinless and our basic inclination is to sin. But God does reveal himself to us. So before you're even going to say anything else about the Lord's Supper, you need to take a step back and just 
Think about how remarkable it is that God reveals himself to us to begin with. What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is spelled out in verses 9 and 10 of this psalm. David belongs to God. Those who are opposed to David in his capacity as king are therefore opposed to God. And what is the destiny of these people who are opposed to God? Well, it says in verse 10, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Boys and girls, if you've ever watched planet Earth, you might have seen footage of the African savanna. Well, if you have, where do jackals rank in terms of animals? Well, they're at the bottom, aren't they? They get to pick over the bones. After lions, for example, come in for the kill, they eat what they want, and the jackals are last. They're scavengers. They get to pick over what's left. So this image of becoming food for jackals is actually a very graphic illustration of the finality of death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God. Jackals, after all, were unclean animals, as all scavengers and carrion animals were. And so this is the ultimate picture of of death. Uncleanness and being separated from God. So those are the two options in life. There's either knowing God and being known by Him, being sustained by Him, being loved by Him, or there is judgment and certain death. There's no middle road. As far as this psalm is concerned, there's no middle ground. And until you fully grasp that, you will never be able to find complete satisfaction in the Lord. You'll always think in the back of your mind that there must still be something else. The psalm says there is not. King David did understand that. So the reference to thirst at the beginning of this psalm represents a much deeper thirst for God. The reference to food in verses 5 and 6 represents the much deeper satisfaction of meditating on God and on his self-revelation. And so the, the challenge of this psalm to us all is, can we make this confession our own? Do we long for God's love? Do you believe that the love of God is the best thing that could ever happen to you? Or is our imagination so small? Are we so easily satisfied with the things of this world that the love of God means so little to us? The question should not be, what does the Lord's Supper mean to me? But do we believe that God alone can satisfy us? Do we believe that he has met every need? Maybe we don't think of it in these terms. But that's not because the word or the sacrament is inadequate. It is because we're so bad at realizing our true need. Imagine someone who has been terribly injured in a car accident. Imagine that the first responders come to him and finally manage to cut him out. And they're about to take him away and he says, hold on. I'm not going anywhere without my phone. You have to find my phone. Well, that's not your greatest need at that moment, is it? Your greatest need at that moment is not for the first responders to find your phone. Your greatest need is to get to a hospital before you bleed out and die. And we think, is this not exactly how we approach God's self-revelation? We think that our greatest need in our spiritual life is something other than what God says it is. 
And because we have been anesthetized by the world that we're in, we don't realize the true nature of our condition. God knows our greatest need. Our greatest need is his love, his favor, his kindness towards us. Our greatest need is to be made right with God. And he has met that need. He meets it in us through faith in Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches us. Without God, your life is always going to be an abject failure. But when he forgives you, you have justification. That means God counts you righteous in his eyes. Or to put it in the words of the catechism, all of Christ's suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. That's what the Lord's Supper means to impress on us through the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine. Notice the reference to suffering and obedience. The suffering is the, the passive obedience of Christ. And the obedience that it refers to is, is active. So there's two sides of what Christ has done for us. Passively, he underwent suffering instead of us. Actively, he was obedient. So it's not just that God in Christ took away what we did wrong. He also gives us what Christ did right. And the technical word for that is imputation. Imputation simply means to credit. From God's perspective, it is as if we personally had suffered and paid for all of our sins. That's, that's what the Lord's Supper means to impress on us through the breaking of bread and the pouring out of the wine. He takes away our sins through the suffering of Christ and he imputes to us all of Christ's goodness. The Australian national budget has been in the news lately for various reasons. But one of the things that you notice with these budgets is that it's a lot of moving numbers around. And probably you get that with any big budget. There might not be enough money for one thing or another, but then the treasurer moves around some categories and some figures and all of a sudden there it is. There's money available after all. And it's not like anything actually changed. First there was no money available, now there is, but the overall economic situation is exactly the same. The budget has some numbers reallocated, but in reality nothing has changed. And maybe some of us think that God's favor works that way as well. You get told that there is no favor for sinners, and then there is. But in the big picture, you think nothing has actually changed. Your, your life doesn't feel any different. Is that really the way that these things work? And the answer to that is no. What God does for us is much more personal. Justification is not something imaginary. Again, to put it in the words of the catechism, all of Christ's suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. That is not imaginary. That is real. That's as real as you can get. But here's the thing. God does not only make a declaration about us. He also works a change within us. He does not just assure us of justification, but he assures us of sanctification. What's that? Well, sanctification is your day-to-day -day growth and holiness. The beginning of our spiritual life is a moment of regeneration. When we first, in a sense, um, are reborn, we, we come to life, spiritual life, and we recognize God for who he is. We ask him for forgiveness, and he forgives us all of our sins. He justifies us. 
But what happens after that? Well, then you need to continue living in holiness. That's sanctification. And it's hard. It's a lifelong fight against sin and the devil in this life. And a reaching out for holiness. The Lord's Supper is therefore not meant as a one-time injection of spiritual energy every two months. Instead, it's meant as a very personal reminder of grace. The grace that sustains us from moment to moment. It reminds us that the life being formed in us is the life of Christ. Lord's Day 29 says that we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. Christ died to give his life for us, not just on the cross, but day after day as we live out of him, as we live out of his grace. His life is present in us through the Holy Spirit, and the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. It assures us of that. It's in eating and drinking that we are assured that we share in his true body and blood. To participate in faith is to receive what the bread and wine represent. So think about that. As a believer, you are never without God's favor. He never ceases to sustain us. Like it says in the psalm, his right hand upholds us. And his hand is stronger than ours. You know, sometimes a child might hold on to the hand of its parent. But the strength of that bond does not depend on the child. Right? It's the parent who grips on the tightest. And it's the same way with us and with God. That's why there's so much joy in this psalm. And it's joy that's reflected in the Lord's Supper celebration. Bread feeds the body. Wine gladdens the heart. And in the same way, we are spiritually fed and gladdened by Christ. We share in his body and blood. We're spiritually joined to him. So often we make our theology abstract. Isn't that one of the, one of the characteristic features of Western thinking? that you have the physical and the emotional, and then you have the spiritual and the theological as these two separate categories. And in a way, that's a good thing. It is a good thing because when you, when you blend them together too much, then you get paganism, right? You get people that worship rocks and trees and stuff like that. And one of the things that made us who we are in terms of Western civilization was, was when the gospel first made us separate these two things. But but they're not meant to be completely unrelated to each other. And, and often we do think that way. You get, your, you get your, your box of physical stuff and your box of spiritual and emotional things. But the Lord's Supper breaches that division. What could be more real than bread? What could be more genuine than wine? And yet these very physical substances are what the Lord uses to make a spiritual point. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, the, that which is eternal floods into our temporal existence, into our awareness, and you participate in that. When you eat and drink, you are using your whole body to worship, not just your mind. You're using all of your senses to contemplate that which is eternal. So the Lord calls you to his table because he is serious about your forgiveness. He's serious about your renewal. He really wants you to understand it. He really wants you to believe it. We'll look at that next. As we saw, the catechism says that he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge. Now, assurance of faith is a wonderful thing to have. 
And sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? But what, what were you actually expecting? Maybe, maybe what we're after, the, thing, the, the holy grail in our mind, the thing that we want is maybe actually not what true assurance even is. Maybe there's also such a thing as false assurance. What is false assurance? Well, one form of false assurance is that which is dependent entirely on our emotions. By nature, we're people who are easily influenced, even at the best of times, aren't we? You try yawning in a group, and you're always going to find some people that also have to yawn all of a sudden. That works every time. We, we are wired to be influenced by each other. If you take a cross-section of the population, you will not really find people who are, who are not influenced by anything. There is a bit of a, a myth, you know. Think, for example, of the old Marlboro smoking campaign, the Marlboro man, the cowboy who's totally independent and doesn't need anyone or anything. And uh, A lot of these um, heroes in film and literature, popular culture are like that, but that's actually a myth. It is not true. We are actually easily influenced. And one of the great religious influences in this world is charismatic Christianity. It's a type of spirituality that you find in Pentecostal churches as well, but then the term charismatic is even broader. So charismatic um, Christianity, charismatic spirituality, you can even find some pockets of that in Roman Catholicism, some currents, some influences. And we also, in our free reform subculture, are definitely influenced by this. One of the characteristics of charismatic Christianity is that it stresses emotional experience as a sign of God's presence. And when you go to churches that specialize in this stuff, these experiences are artificially induced using certain forms of music and lighting. And if you have no idea what this is about, go onto YouTube on Monday, of course, and type in Hillsong Worship and see what you come up with. And you might be surprised at what you see. The impression that gets conveyed through, through that type of worship in these types of churches is that emotional intensity equals faith. But the problem is, if you actually believe that and use that as a metric, as a measurement, then any time that you feel emotionally flat, it must also mean that your faith is weak. And that's not actually how these things work at all. Faith involves so much more than just your emotions. Emotions are by nature temporary. Emotions are chemicals in your brain. Emotions can even be influenced by drugs. They can be affected by faith, but having strong, passionate emotions does not necessarily equate to having a strong faith. So that's one form of false assurance, uh, an intensity of emotion. Another form of false assurance is focusing on the form of the sacrament too much. And that, of course, is what Roman Catholics do, don't they? To them, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ in a process that they call transubstantiation. It might still look and taste like bread and wine, but to them, it is actually the body and the blood of Christ. And they mean that very literally. But imagine for a moment if this were true. Imagine what, how reassuring that would be. You could actually be in the physical presence of Christ himself. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, the host, the bread, is placed in a special container called a monstrance so that people can come and worship it after the Mass. 
Another form of false assurance is hope that it will all work out in the end. Some people are optimists by nature. They have a very strong belief that everything will work out in the end. And there's a little bit of that in um, the Australian spirit too, isn't there? The sort of larrikin spirit, right? She'll be all right, mate, that kind of thing. That is there. And these are sometimes people who have undergone tremendous suffering and they've borne it bravely even though they had no faith. They were carried by this belief that everything would work out in the end. And that form of assurance is um, kind of quasi-spiritual. It is a form of faith in faith, so to speak. Now, it can be a noble thing. It's um, very impressive sometimes to read to read what some people go through without faith to support them, just with a belief in the endurance of the human spirit. It's, it's certainly impressive, but it is not saving faith, and it is definitely not the same thing as the assurance that the Lord works in us through the Lord's Supper. Those are all forms of false assurance. What then is true assurance? Well, it can only ever be based on God's promises. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of these promises, but the promises themselves themselves are what gives us assurance. These promises are the unbreakable word of God. The assurance that you find in verse 63 as well, or Psalm 63 as well, in the very first verse when David says, O Lord, you are my God. That's the essence of assurance. That's the ultimate confession of faith. It's really just a, an affirmation of the promises that God made to us first. It's the same thing he says to all of his people. It's a thread running through the Bible. Genesis 17, verse 8, he says to Abraham, I will be their God. Matthew 22, verse 32, Jesus says, God is a God of the living. Hebrews 8, verse 10, quotes from the Old Testament, applies it to the New Testament church. That's us. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So assurance is simply to know that God is our God and to be able to speak these words back to him and mean it. Can you do that, brothers and sisters? Are you able to make the words of this psalm your own and to actually say that, oh God, you are my God, and to believe it? Can you do that? This inner assurance then is reinforced through the inner experience of consuming the bread and the wine. The Catechism reminds us that the bread and the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. But we are assured that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in His true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of Him. So we are reassured by something that is outside of ourselves. It's not an emotional experience, although it can be a profoundly emotional thing. But it is found outside of us, so to speak. The bread and the wine are outside of us, and they, they reassure us when they become a part of us in a very physical way through the means of digestion. Certainty, by definition, is always going to have to be found outside of yourself. That's actually a tremendously helpful antidote to the insecurity that we feel when we look within ourselves. Because that's what insecurity is. You look within yourself and you're not sure anymore and you start to wonder. But the Lord's Supper forces us to look outside of ourselves. 
And at the same time, the bread and the wine, which came from outside of ourselves, becomes a part of us. And then we are assured that we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. You think about it. Could God have found a better way of reassuring us than the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? If you think about what it actually means. Sometimes our lack of assurance can come from a sense that God is not satisfied with us. But that's not helpful. It's a wrong angle to take. The question is not whether God is satisfied with us or not. We already have the answer to that. All of Christ's suffering and obedience are certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. And remember, that's not just the minimum to get back into God's grace. It's not getting the thermometer or the bank balance from from negative into, into zero. We don't have the passive obedience of Christ only, but we have his active obedience He didn't just die to take away our sins, but he died to make us righteous. And by his spirit, he continues to shape us into his image. So the real question is not, is God satisfied with us? The real question is, are you satisfied with God and with God alone? What does that mean? Well, you're satisfied with God when all you want is his love and kindness. You're satisfied with God when all you want is his covenant love, his steadfast love. The covenant love that, that uh, in Hebrew we have this word chesed, it's steadfast love. You might have heard it before. God's covenant love that he extends to us. And in verse 3, David actually says a very unusual thing. He says that God's steadfast love, his chesed, is better than life. And it's unusual because one of the ways that God shows his steadfast love is by protecting people's lives, by surrounding them with his care. So, so when David says that God's steadfast love is better than life, in a way, he's, he's leaving his life behind. He's not thinking about himself anymore. All he wants to, to do is to be in the presence of God. He wants to, he's drawn out of himself. He's looking past himself. He doesn't use himself anymore as a point of reference. And that's the key to having security in faith. The key to having security in faith is to look beyond yourself. It is to look beyond the mere symbols of bread and wine. It is to look to what the bread and wine means. When you look beyond yourself, when you look beyond the symbols, when you're operating purely on the level of raw faith, when remembering God and His care is the most satisfying thing, then you can be sure. Then you realize that God is present everywhere. There's no no part of the universe, no part of our experience, no part of our souls where he's not present and he's not aware of. He's there at all times, not just at the Lord's Supper. And then you can live in profound gratitude for who he is and what he, he does. Then you see the Lord's Supper for what it actually is. So that's why the Lord called you to his table this morning. Because he is serious about your forgiveness and your renewal. He really wanted you to understand. He really wanted you to believe it. He really wants you to find peace in it. He's really like that. Aren't you grateful? Amen.